0: Welcome to the ACRO Files. The American College of Real Estate Lawyers was founded in 1978 by a group of 18 practitioners who set a path forward to build a national organization that would foster the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment of real estate projects. We continue this series of podcasts with individuals who played an important role in both the founding of the college, and the growth of the real estate legal industry to talk about their observations about the past and to share their insights for the benefit of future generations of real estate lawyers. Today, my guest is my good friend, Bill Dunn. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Jay, glad to be here. Great, how's the weather in Detroit?
1: It's a sunny day. Uh, We're going to have warm weather tomorrow and then snow and ice the day following. So, you know, it's winter.
0: Typical Detroit. What can we expect? So Bill, before we focus on ACROL and some of the um, important things um, relating to that, I'd like to sort of start by rolling the tape all the way back and hear a little bit from you about um, where where you were born and grew up in, uh, I assume in Michigan, but I'm not sure. So tell us a little bit about that. I was born in
1: Newark, New Jersey. And uh, for a long time, I we joked that, I moved from New York to Detroit. You know, it's two of the most undesirable cities in the country, um, but um, they both turned out pretty well. Born in New York in uh, in the '30s, uh, actually, and um, moved to Michigan when I was six, and uh, grew up on the east side of Detroit. Um, and I've always hung around here.
0: Well, I was born in Newark, also, so I didn't know that we had that connection. Really great. That's pretty amazing. So, but interestingly enough, I know you're a Michigan law guy. You went to Muskegon. No, that's commonly mispronounced, Jay. Muskegon is a place in Michigan.
1: It's really nice down in Michigan. Muskegon-Gum College, down in New Concord, Ohio, small Presbyterian school.
0: My dad was a
1: Presbyterian minister, and uh, that, he was he was a minister in Linters, New Jersey, and then in Detroit. So that explains that. It also explains why I went to Muskingum College because it was it was the easy thing to do, kind of the legacy choice. <clears throat> um, and it was a very pleasant, uh, nice Ohio town, and
0: I learned a lot of things there. A lot of things. It was just a, a great experience. What What was the most significant thing you learned looking back? um uh, to value what
1: could be was offered by incredibly bright teachers uh who didn't just teach but they wanted to infuse your life and uh that was so it's been so valuable and so many of my memories and my and things that I know today filling out crossword puzzles I learned in college uh and I haven't forgotten them and uh it was just a, a great experience about life and knowledge, uh, and in caring mentors. And um, it was um, it was a great experience. I really really loved it. Uh, as I look back on it, it wasn't so great at the time, but I it, I've appreciated it the older I get. Okay, so you came back to Ann Arbor. Why law school? Uh, I couldn't think of anything else better to do. Let's put it that way. It was a, a default choice. I, you know, There's a lot of people that I've talked to over the years that have had the same feeling that law school was a default choice. Didn't know what else to do. I had to do something and went to law school. I, I really probably wanted to be an architect, but I was terrible in math and I never thought I would succeed at being an architect. Um, you know, I had to do something or I would have been drafted. Uh, sorry to say, I didn't want to do that. So um, went to law school. And I was fortunate to get admitted to
0: the University of Michigan um, and um, survived that experience. Did you think about going other places and coming home to, then coming home to Michigan? No. It was the only law school I applied to, believe it or not. Well, your, your friend Cowan has a similar story about, about Harvard. Um, yep. So um, that, that was obviously more. That's a generational thing, right? That, that right. changed. Right, right. Of course, Cowan started out in Ann Arbor. In, yes, uh, he did. in college there, so. But he didn't finish. No. As, as you well know. Yeah. Uh, and then, so when you were at Michigan, I don't, w- w- when you were in law school, were there summer associate jobs and summer law firm jobs, like we have had the last 35, 40 years? Yep, Yeah, sure were. And, uh, <clears throat>
1: Uh, my first two years of law school were sort of, you know, what am I here for? Is this really going to work out? Why am I here? Um, I I think I worked at a YMCA between my freshman and sophomore uh, years, first and second years. Um, But I worked at a law firm in Detroit um, uh, as a summer associate uh, between my second and third years. And it was then I I said, wow, this is really interesting. I could enjoy this. And... um, I think that inspired me to do very well in my uh, third year and, uh, uh, and in, in, you know, made a big difference, uh, the, that practical experience. I can't imagine what life would have been like without it.
0: And was that summer associate job? Was that the firm you went back to the following year? No, no, no.
1: <laughs> a story, uh, which I don't mind telling. Um, it was a law firm, a very good law firm in Detroit, still a good law firm in Detroit. Um, I had a great summer, Uh, got involved in some really interesting projects, uh, worked with some of the senior lawyers very well, contributed a lot. And at the end of the summer, everybody said, you know, we have really enjoyed having you around. You've been terrific. You've been one of the best summer associates we've ever had. But we're not going to offer you a job because we think that grades are of transcendent importance. And I only really had great grades in law school in my third year, so they didn't. I would they of didn't offer me the job uh, until or didn't refuse me a job until late in the third year. But it was uh, a, a choice that um, I think I'm glad they made, and I think they're glad that they're they're not happy they made it. But you know we've maintained good relationships. I like to tease them. Every time I, you know, published an article or became chair of something or did some deal, I would, you know, tick the senior partner that wrote me that letter about grades being of transcendent
0: importance. And I said, hope you're doing well. (laughs) And and which law firm did you you join out of law school? I joined the law firm that I am at today. Right. That's what I thought. So that... been
1: here here 56 years
0: it's pretty amazing only job i've ever had Uh, not really but only full-time job i've had that that is pretty amazing not not only given the world we live in today but but even over the last 30 40 years there's just not that many people that have been at one law firm for 50 plus years right it's amazing they put up with me this long yeah well, I, I think they were very wise in their judgment. So, so when you started, back, back coming out of Michigan Law School, did you choose real estate? Did you have an interest in real estate? When I came out of law school, Jay, I uh, was determined
1: to be a labor lawyer. Uh, I took as many labor courses as I could at U of M. I figured in the market, if I were going to Detroit, why, and I wasn't wedded to going back to Detroit to practice but um, uh, you know, the, this was a, a strong market, and uh, why not be a labor lawyer? And I tried that for a year or so at my law firm, which had a very fine, still has a very fine labor practice. <clears throat> but I didn't quite get along with the uh, senior partner in charge of the labor group. He didn't think I was what he wanted, and I wasn't sure he was what I wanted. So we well, looked around and. And uh, they said, you know, we'd really like somebody to work into real estate. Now, real estate back in the early 60s wasn't much. Okay, It was a lot of title work at the very beginning. And so I ran abstracts and wrote opinions for a year or so, learning a lot about real estate. And I learned a lot Uh, about people, about the people, the companies who wrote, who prepared the abstracts, who eventually wrote the title insurance. And I became very familiar with them uh, and the art. And I learned a lot about title insurance and wound up lecturing on it and being part of the ALTA Lender Council Group, which was a really good experience and got me in touch with all of the major lenders and life companies, um, which served my career and practice very well but it was also really interesting to think about title
0: problems. But that's how I grew up as a title lawyer. And when you started at the law firm, I'm just curious, how many lawyers were at the firm?
1: I think there were 25 at the time. There are about 625 today, maybe 725, something like that. Uh, But uh, there was only one, one principal real estate lawyer who was a very old gentleman. Uh, and a couple of other people who did devil some things, but you know, again, it was not. There were a lot of sophisticated deals back in the early '60s. Uh, that didn't start until a little later. Uh, but
0: you know, next decade, practically. So it sounds like, even at that um, um, beginning time of, of real estate practices and real estate development just getting going, you were attracted not just to title. You mentioned opinions. Doing legal opinions.
1: Yeah, well, title opinions and legal opinions, of course, are two quite different things. But yeah, I was always writing opinions. Always, I've been opinionated for a long time.
0: <laughs> yes, and so, so did when you started thinking about legal opinions. Did you ever imagine that that would become sort of major part of your? Uh, I mean, your legacy and the things that you've done and thought about with the Accord and all those things you've worked on over the years.
1: You know, one thing leads to another. Um, um, Mm -hmm. Actually, I wound up doing more work for lenders than I did for borrowers for most of my career. Uh, But I, why I got into legal opinions, third-party legal opinions, uh, was probably that perspective. Um, I was just interested in the subject, let's put it that way. And uh, so I pursued it, learning about it from those who gave them and those who received them, counseling uh, lenders who received them, what they should be looking for. So I sort of learned it from the recipient side first, and then began representing borrowers and giving those opinions. Um, And, uh, you know, everything, as you may recall from when I accepted the Lane Award, I opened with never leave well enough alone, uh, Raymond Lowy's famous quote. And so I, I, everything could be improved. And so I was always figuring out why something would be said this way and what it meant and what are the implications of saying it this way, etc. And uh, so it's just the fascinating rabbit hole I have pursued.
0: So, when you were representing lenders, um, and, and as you said, Detroit was a relatively small town for real estate back then. Did that was that your jumping off point to practicing outside of Michigan? Yes, um,
1: but by and large, my practice has been in Michigan. I, I have, um, you know, I've worked with national parties but mostly in michigan deals um it's not, hasn't been necessarily true of late but <clears throat> that certainly i i was a michigan lawyer practicing law in michigan i did not perceive myself as a lawyer that should practice law or be influencing deals in other jurisdictions so i didn't think all that big back in those days um I I was fortunate in in connecting with enough lawyers through various contacts, state bar, local Michigan bar practice, my title industry contacts, my, uh, um, my presence in the ABA section, which began in the 70s. But I just got to know people and got to understand what they were looking for. And I I figured that one of the best things I could do was become the lawyer most likely to be called for help in Michigan. And um, while I have not been the only lawyer called for help in Michigan, it's been a very good way to have built my career to be identified with Being able to answer clients' needs from whatever source, basically tied with Michigan and
0: Michigan businesses. Um, right. So let's let, let's let's um, talk about the seventies as you just mentioned, because in nineteen seventy eight, as you well know, John Gos and Fred Lane and Ray Potter got together with some other folks and decided they wanna start a new mm-hmm. association of real estate lawyers. Um, and a lot, of, you were there at the very beginning um, and a lot of those people do, do sound like the ABA real property section was the, maybe the initial um, connector for some of those people. But tell us, tell us your recollection about, you know, how ACRO got started and, 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 and you know, what, what your role was.
1: Well, Acrel <clears throat> began in 1979, actually, as an organization. Um, the uh, the founders, uh, principally, Gose and Lane and Potter, uh, had gotten together uh, informally. Both all were active in the real property section, real property probate and trust at the time section uh, of the ABA. And um, I was active in in committee work. Um, I don't think I'd been elected to council yet. I don't think so, no. But uh, active in committee work, uh, I had uh, done some CLE with uh, Tony and, and others uh, and Tony Strum, Tony Cucklin and Brian uh, Strum and others. Um, so I was getting to be known by those folks, but. Uh, it was, and one of the great things, and this is kind of an aside about in, in, important get togethers, we always could meet with all of these neat people who knew so much about the industry, senior lawyers active in the ABA, and we'd all have a nightcap. It's fashionable back in those days to do that. Um, and we'd sit around for hours talking about deals and talking about experiences. And I learned so much from those experiences, um, all preceding ACRO, basically. Much of it preceding ACRO. But at any rate, um, when, um, when we talked, we were frustrated that the ABA being the organization that it was with the hierarchy it had what did not provide much flexibility for public comment and for action that we as real estate lawyers thought needed to be taken at various governmental levels. So that was the, the reason ACRL got born, was to be able to do with the same people that were active in the ABA, what the ABA couldn't do, um, and hence ACRL. Um So that was really the reason for its existence and how it got started with all the same people who were in the ABA and they just sort of transitioned over to Acro, And those those are the founding folks as well. As well as some, and and then as the the organization decided to grow uh, and basically to establish itself in 1979, a number of people were invited who were well known in the industry, but not necessarily in ABA. And so a number of the early people in Acreau, um you know, came in not knowing a lot of the same people, so we we began to mix the uh, the talent, if you will. But that's the that was the beginning days. Um, 1979 was fun because about the I think the one and only time the ABA real property section has met in Michigan, we met in Dearborn in 1979. And um, the tent meeting on the lawn of the Hyatt Regency, where the organizational meeting of ACRO was held, uh, was nicely attended by 44 people. Uh, I remember it was pretty packed in that tent. um, And it was just a really interesting time to talk about uh, forming an organization and that we were all there at the beginning and how neat it was. A lot of great people.
0: Yep, including you and Cowan at that meeting in uh, Dearborn. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, that, so that meeting in Dearborn was followed by a meeting in Arlington, Virginia. Right. From you can tell from the history that you guys were at. Um, and in fact, it's interesting what you say about this um, desire for engagement um, in having a public voice. The, the, um, and, and looking outside of the confines of the ABA section and, and getting more out there. Do you do you remember who the speaker was at the first the, or at the meeting in Arlington, Virginia? No, I cannot. So it was the what? general the general counsel of HUD. HUD. That's right. That's right. Yes, I do. I right. do, a, I do. a woman named right. Jane Brew. Yeah. Um, we had both an outside speaker and a woman, which was a good thing because, as you know, at the very beginning there weren't a lot of women um, involved. Um, there was a woman at that meeting named Minerva Wilson Andrews. Yep, I saw um, um, who was part of May's Valentine at some point, um, and then yep. um, um, so yeah, and then all of those people you mentioned: Tony Cokely, Brian Strum, Steve, you, John Hollyfield, and you know the founding classes, that was the, what we've designated, you know, the college is designated historically as the founders of Acro in 79 and, and 80 at those first two meetings. Right. And,
1: and how- ha- uh, Go ahead. college, uh, I, I recall being in a meeting at HUD uh, talking about um, um, truth and lending and uh, other, <clears throat> you know, regulatory issues <clears throat> in which, you know, our voices need to be heard, and uh, it was cool experiences,
0: and I think meaningful ones. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's not 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 of knowing that before. That it's fascinating to understand that that was an important part of the founding tenets of the college, and as we've debated those kinds of things over the years, and what role. You know the college can play in the form of public debate as you, you remember i'm sure we talked about this with steve you know kevin shepherd was out there on the gatekeepers initiatives and actually testified very important voice very important voice right kevin has
1: kevin has recently written a, written the position paper for the aba comment on fincen uh, i don't know whether acro spoken on that
0: subject uh, directly or not. But, uh, you know, Kevin's work project is phenomenal. So so as, the, and, and you served as president of the college back in 1984, I think, the fourth president of the college. I was the fifth president of the college.
1: Oh no, I was the fourth president in the fifth year, sorry. Fifth yeah, year, right. Fourth and fifth. fifth.
0: Right. Twice, right, I think.
1: Yeah, Tony, uh, or Fred Lane was president for effectively three years, 79, 80, 81 followed by Tony and then Ed Hirschler and then me. Right. I was, I was, I was advanced to be president. Um, I, I think very intentionally, not because I was great necessarily, but because I hadn't been chair of the ABA section. And it was a way to begin to break Acrel apart from just simply ABA succession, Acrel succession, in, in sequence. Um, and um, basically, from that point forward, being president, being chair of the ABA section meant nothing as far as one's progress through the chairs of ECRO.
0: But yet, there's a lot of, of, of the important people like you, Dick Goldberg, Morty, right, who were, and you too, you went on to be chair of the section afterwards, right? Yes. Yes, um,
1: I was chair of the section in the uh, late '80s, '89 and '90. So it was quite a bit after my, uh, you know, seven years, as eight years after the uh, six or seven years after my acro presidency.
0: So, so you have this great perspective from from the perch you sat in and and leading and, uh, and the college really back at its very beginnings um you know what what role do you think the college has played um in in both your career and, and and just sort of how real estate has become nationalized i mean one thing i always said when i talked to howard kane about this over the years right back then there weren't any national law firms right there were there were maybe some regional firms maybe and there are a lot of local firms and 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 the industry at some point in that chronology began to um, branch out from just being local, local, local. What, what role did ACRL play for you know, you, your group of, of, of founders and, and, and as you transitioned to other people over the following years in the real estate world? Well, first of all,
1: ACRL <clears throat> was a selective membership, not one you could join by paying a fee. <clears throat> Uh, So it narrowed the population, if you will, of people to work together. Um, Many of the people from the ABA section who were active were, of course, course became ACRO members, and so that continued. But we very purposely were looking for lawyers who had not been, quote, simply ABA members, and at the time, most law firms, many law firms sponsored everybody in the firm to be a member of the ABA. So it wasn't, you know, it was sort of logical and many firms in contrast to today would pay for you to go to the meetings and pay for you to be part of of section programs, et cetera, uh, which isn't so necessarily today uh, nearly as broadly. But um, uh, ACREL's emphasis on who was influential in real estate in various areas was very important to select, pull the members in to to enhance the quality of the uh, overall experience of the group. Um, That's what makes it unusual. Uh, there are other selected memberships, uh, groups around also, but uh, ACREL, uh did a very dedicated job. We established membership standards early. Um, we recruited early, um, you know, we, the goal was to make sure it was a national organization, American and had to have somebody from every state. And, you know, we, we struggled to fill that role, fill that uh, uh, challenge. Uh, we did so successfully, but uh, not at the expense of quality and uh, and the ability to participate to enhance everyone else's experience together. Um, the um, the fact that it had a an ability to speak publicly without um, a, a hierarchy to please um, made it interesting, but I don't know that it's ever that it's really. Um, seized that role to march on Washington, if you will, um, uh, as often as it could, um, but it's spoken when it needed to. Uh, so it wasn't, it's not a passion of the group. It is a, a function and a fulfillment for the group. But um, you know, I, I think the, the value of, of ACRL is the assemblage of people with great talent and a great experience and, and a willingness to share that. Um, now how does that differ from your national law firm Mm, a lot (laughs) because uh any one law firm has can have a tremendous knowledge and influence in the practice but we don't none of us know everything and there are other points of view and we will work with the people on other sides in deals um so getting to have a college, if you will, a collegiality, uh, knowing people as colleagues um, facilitates,
0: has facilitated our work. There's no question about it. That's the value of Ackroll. And, and you, it's to your point, right? So today, if we fast forward it, right? We're in a world now where there's these very large law firms, ours being one of many, right, with offices, in lots of places, not, not all places, so you, you still need local counsel on, on many things. Um, but even beyond needing local counsel, to your point about some people may think they know everything, right? But, but there's a lot of people out there, um, and we're blessed in the college to have a lot of really smart people to, to exchange information and ideas on how deals get done. Right. Everybody likes to talk about them. That's, that's the fun part. So, so what, what would your advice be? Guidance, right? To, um, to the next gen, you know, the, the, the people who are adding to the college now in there, you know, if, I mean, you guys adopted in the very beginning, we talked to Steve about this, the 10 year requirement um, to get in. The, the, interestingly, Steve- The give back. The give back requirement was there in the very beginning. So, there, so that and that's obviously remained an important piece of the of the re, of the puzzle and the requirements today. But, but how would you advise people? How would you urge people and advise people to come to the college and, and want to be in the college when we're in this world where um, the, the the requirements and the um, the the um, things that people need to do outside of speaking and writing and teaching. Um, which was important um, for many of us and many of of, of you guys in the Founders Group, what's the message to people today about what's the importance of the college and why they should continue to do those kinds of things?
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, I can only say that the college is an enrichment that one should not ignore if possible. Okay. Uh, there are many great organizations, and you know we've all been part of many of them. But the college is unique to me in its collection of people who wish to work together, to be together, um, to to share experiences, and to enjoy each other's company. Uh, there's a, a, a wonderful social aspect of being part of the college, and it's uh, it's difficult to maintain by Zoom. But um, it, it's been not been unsuccessful in, in, in doing that. People want to participate. So it's it's worth being part of a group that wants to be together for reasons other than, um, um, you know, the fact that I get paid <clears throat> to do that, to be there. I think it's very challenging, Jay, to, to um, uh, for, for young lawyers today to fulfill the uh, ACREL standards, if you will, um, uh, and it—it's a challenge. I think the college recognizes uh, that law firms do not uh, necessarily support the same kind of freedom that I had. I—I I can't believe, as I look back on it, how generous uh, my partners were uh, in supporting all of the activities that I engaged in uh, at ABA and and other organizations early in my career, sometimes even before I was a partner in the firm, um, uh, to allow me to uh, expand my abilities, my um, influence, my uh, knowledge, everything. It was, it's it's amazing the sacrifice that, I represent to that, to the law firm. Um, I I think that's difficult to uh, replicate today. I don't know that it's replicating today. One has to prove that one can provide value back to the firm from these kinds of experiences. Um, I have to say that in my experience, being part of ACRL has justified that standard as well. I think that um, we, we do exchange uh, work together. We, uh, you know, I have never failed to come back with information, whether it's business or not, it's information about uh, some practice or some law or some idea that benefits uh you know 35 other people in my group um so uh, it you really need to value what can come back from your experience if you give to begin with um it it's a it's a hard problem to see how to solve <clears throat> into under today's standards uh, you know Those of us who are reform-minded think, you know, you got rid of the billable hour, you you need to revalue how people are rewarded about what their contribution should be and so forth. Um, And um, if you are committed to enhance your career as a lawyer, no matter what those requirements are, you somehow just have to say, I'm going to segment this activity and i'm going to do this and i'll figure out how to rebalance everything else and i as i was thinking about it you're never going to keep all of your life in balance at the same time everything isn't going to all be in equilibrium something's going to be up here something's going to be down there um and that's the only way lawyers today can do it that's the way lawyers in our firm are doing it they're they're meeting requirements and yet they're figuring out a way and, yeah, there's a little sacrifice of uh, free time and sacrifice of, um, you know, something else. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it is, to me, so valuable uh, what you can achieve, what you, what you can gain and, and, and contribute. It's just this wonderful two-way relationship that we in,
0: the, we in this profession value, I think. Yeah, well, I I think you really said it well and and what people can still get from the college by being part of it. And you touched on the challenges of, um, you know, meeting the requirements to get in the professional development slash give back requirements. And I I, I have always said that, while our firms all supported it and the world has changed. um, The the, the short-sightedness today that having people out there speaking, writing, teaching, whatever they're doing, making presentations, does inure to the benefit of the law firms, of course, as you well know, um, by, 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 by getting people to meet other people, by honing your presentation skills, of course, and, and also having to learn what you're talking about and being sure. So all those things today, are no different than they were when we all did them. I think the difference is the pressures on, yep. the, on the younger lawyers, especially. And of course, making partners only the first step in, in, in all these questions. Right. So I, I think we we, we we benefited, you know, my, I say this all the time, my generation of people benefited greatly by the, the standards that you and your colleagues steve dick john hollyfield morty you know all those people siskin set because they were so generous with their with their willingness to talk and go out and had the support of the firms i, I think right. that's right so that was re- that was really critical to the growth of the college and to the growth of all these people who, who were the beneficiaries of everything that you guys did i mean if you had to um, sort of say, you know, what what's the biggest change in the practice of law? Put put aside, you know, Akron, What's the biggest change in the practice of law over your career? Hmm. <clears throat> biggest change in the practice of law.
1: I really haven't thought about change. I guess I've just done it as it's happened.
0: Right. Um, so it's we, been so fluid. It's just because it
1: changed constantly.
0: Yeah, right? we just
1: we just in your to it as it as it happens. Um, I think that um, I think that the uh, socialization of the practice has become less um, prevalent. I don't think that the, um, I think it is, and I, I don't say it in a negative way, it's become much more of a business than it's uh, something you pursue out of um, purpose but recognizing that you have a, a relationship with the rest of the law profession that needs to be um, respected, honored, lived by the rules, and so on and so forth. I think that uh, today it is, it's much more, much more of a business, and I'm not saying that's bad. Um, <laughs> I, I'm leading efforts to try to get the rules to change, to recognize that it's a business, uh, and, and not something um, uh, magical of the past, but um, you know there are there are many com- competitors for what we used to do um, in, in 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 the marketplace. <clears throat> there is a, a need, or, or, or technology has been able to fill needs that lawyers were exclusively the providers of. We have recognize that uh, many real estate deals can be done by people who aren't lawyers at all. We have um, uh, players in the field um, that are, you know, multidisciplinary practices. We have developments uh, from uh, particularly uh, in the UK and Canada alternative business services where we have combinations of of non-lawyers and lawyers practicing um, we have an internet uh, system of, of uh, seeking legal uh, recourse and legal assistance uh, that is uh, outside the uh, regulatory structure of the law profession that people worry about, and yet a lot of people turn to it. Uh, we call it, unfortunately, in, in Michigan, the effort we're, I'm working on is an Called access to justice. I don't think it's necessarily justice. I don't think it's, quote, the poor, unquote, that are not getting served. I think it's almost everybody at every economic level that's saying, that, you know, the profession needs to wake up and, and do things differently. Uh, we need to get more business like. We need to be more, uh, more modernized, more technically uh, technolog- technologically uh, able to serve clients without charging outrageous fees, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think there's a lot of pressure from the business side um, uh, to justify why we are the exclusive providers of of service, and that's the change in the profession that I see, or change in the in the profession to the profession that I see uh, today, that remarkably different than it was when I began.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, so, so. Um... I wanna ask you two last questions here that are a little bit off the um, track of what we've been talking about. The first one would be, what would your advice be to yourself as a 25 year old now looking back? As a 25 year old? What would you have told your 25 year old self knowing everything you know now? Go West young man, no. Um... I would have
1: said to my, to me, um, you know, you could do better. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can improve your game. Work
0: harder. Isn't that frightful? That, that, yeah. Given how hard you worked, and I think Cowan had a similar answer. And nobody, as you know, works harder than Cowan. Yes. So, so, with with perspective of. 50 plus years looking back, telling yourself to work harder for me doesn't sort of sound like the advice you would need to give yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I'm sure there are things I could have done that I didn't do. And it bothers me that I didn't. So yeah, I would say try harder, work harder, do better. And I don't feel guilty about that. You know, when I think about, well, Am I just being a, a FUD about things, right? No, I'm, I'm not. But that, again, this is the standard that, as of our ancient age right now, we see that we could have done better. And it's a little um, less satisfying that we have left anything behind.
0: Right. Okay. And my last question would be, if you weren't a lawyer, what profession would you have chosen?
1: Well, I, as uh, when we talked about why I went to law school, I said I would have been an architect, and I think I would have loved that. But I'm going to say that I would love to be the conductor of a major symphony orchestra. Why is that? Well, I love music. Uh, I know an incredible amount about music. I'm not a great musician. I'm a, believe it or not, a former professional singer, um, and, but, uh, and I love the creation music. I love conducting a, a choir. I conducted church choirs for 20 years, uh, after graduating law school, and it was one of my great, it's my great side thing to have done, made me sane after working in a law firm for a week to go and rehearse a choir and then perform it on Sunday. Uh, but, um, I can listen to uh, um, Sirius XM uh, channel 76, and I know most of the compositions that I hear, and I don't know why I know them, but they're there in my head. It's like the, I have a built-in music library. And it kind of drives me nuts that I don't do anything more to express that. So
0: being a symphony conductor would be my idea of a fun, ex- fun career. Okay. Well- I would say you've done a pretty good job conducting a different kind of orchestra in the last 50 plus years. and, and well, thank you, Jay. And make this college and, and, and all of us who have the benefit of, of, of your wise leadership and wisdom over the years. So thank you for that. Thank you for agreeing to subject yourself to um, our questions today um, on this podcast. And thank you for everything you've done for us and for the college. Well, thank you, Jay,
1: uh, it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you. It's been a, a great pleasure to be part of the college and I was honored from the very start to, uh, to have been included and uh, I've tried to serve it well and it has served me and the profession well and I wish it many years ahead. Great, thanks Bill. Thank you.